So I'm sitting in a pew, and, and uh, a thought occurs to me that I want to take this in a slightly different direction than I was going to go, okay? We are going to be in, in Ephesians, but I want us to start in a different place. Keep your finger or put a pencil somewhere in Ephesians and flip over to uh, Genesis 12. Flip over to Genesis 12. For those of you who are new to Christianity or maybe you're just looking at it, it is the, the first book. It's all the way to the left in your Bible. If you're ever trying to figure out where books are, they have a table of contents at the beginning, and you can flip there, and it'll show you where all of them are. Uh, if you, if you want to not feel bad about that, at the end of the service, walk up to probably anybody in here and say, can you name the, the books of the Bible? And they'll say yes, and they will turn to the table of contents, and they'll begin to, begin to read them. Okay. So for whatever reason, in our minds, there's, there's kind of this separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the Old Testament, when you look at it, you begin to think works, right? You begin to think rules, regulations, sacrifices, and all these types of things. And then you think of the New Testament, and you think of grace. And so this divide, this line of demarcation occurs there after Malachi and, and before Matthew. The amazing thing, and what we're going to be looking at today is largely the effects of grace in the life of the, of, of the Christian or the believer. But what I want you to recognize is that God has always been gracious, right? It's not that the time of Malachi ended and God said, you know, man, this just isn't working. I've got to figure out a different way to do this. People just aren't relating to me the way that they used to. I need to figure something out. Now I'm going to be a gracious, now I'm going to be a good God and be known as benevolent. God has always been gracious. He has always been good. He's always displayed that to people. And one of the places we see that is here in, in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, God comes into the life of a nobody from nowhere. He comes into the life of this guy, Abram. Now look what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Abraham hears this and he says, This is pretty fantastic. God's going to do something amazing to me, effectively, God is, is being gracious to Abraham. He's making him into something he was not. Do you get that? He was a nobody from nowhere. No real family to speak of, past he and his wife. And he's telling, God is telling Abram that he's going to make him into something radically different than he is. He's going to be gracious in extending and changing Abraham and who he, Abram and who he is. And ultimately, his name becomes Abraham. Look what he says here. He's going to do these great things for him. But look what he says. I'll bless you and make your name great that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. What God calls Abram to do is to move forward in the same extension of blessing that God is blessing Abraham. What God did to Abram was he came to a person who was a nobody from nowhere. And he was gracious to him and he made him into a great nation so that he might turn around and bless others. What God does in the life of the Christian, as we read about in Ephesians, is he comes to a person who is dead, right? Everybody say, I was dead. He came to a dead person and he made you alive. He was gracious to you. There is no divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has always been a God who is gracious who is bestowing his grace on those he encounters. And he calls on his people to respond appropriately to that graciousness. Let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 together, and then we'll walk through 8 through 10 corporately. Paul starts in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Things were bad and they were only getting worse. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Everything changes in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and summarily he states, by grace you have been saved. He's made us alive together with Christ, and he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now pay attention 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Christian has been visited by the grace of God and has responded in faith. And the result of that, the result of that calls us to obedience. Look at this. It begins here in the beginning, in verse 8. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What he offered there is a kind of a summary statement in verse 5. And the second part of verse 5 was, was meant to encapsulate all that had come before. Effectively, we recognize that we were dead people. You said it earlier. I was a little creeped out by that, how quickly you said that. But we were, we were dead people. God came in, and he has made us alive. And Paul, reflecting on, that, reflecting on that reality, says, by grace you're saved. By grace you're saved. And so this, this radical concept of grace comes near to us. And it's something foreign from our concept of, of how we go about life day to day. We generally are more kind to people that are more kind to us, right? And so if you're out and engaging with public, and so I meet Joel on the street, and Joel walks by and kicks me, and is ugly to me, and slaps me, and, punch, and, and Joel's much larger than I am, and so this could really happen. Y'all, this could happen. I could be walking down Wesley Street, I could see him, and it's like, bam, bam, and I'm just laying there. <laughs> That's the sound I make when I get kicked and punch. <laughs> you know, it's not pretty, but at that point I'm in pain. What grace does, is goes back to Joel and doesn't seek retribution. What grace does is extends forgiveness to Joel. Not because he is worthy of forgiveness, but is based upon the person that extends it. This is the amazing thing that God does through Jesus Christ to each and every dead person that responds to him. You have effectively punched and kicked and spit and sinned and, and been a horrible person over the course of your life. Some of you are just like, he must be talking about my spouse. That's just not me. He must be talking about my mother-in-law. I agree. <laughs> but friend, this is you. This is me. Over the course of our life, the way Scripture tells it, we were dead, we were set against God. We were affected internally, externally, and supernaturally, leading us away from God. We hated God, and our hatred for him was only intensifying towards the end. And what we read about there in, in the first little bit of Ephesians is that we, were, we had wrath coming to us 
If you had died in being spiritually dead, the wrath of God would be visited upon you. You would eternally be separated from God. You would spend eternally, the Bible says, in hell. And that's the place where you would ultimately choose to go because you chose to follow yourself. You chose to stay dead instead of becoming alive. Grace, grace is God coming near dead people. Grace is God coming near people that are radically opposed to them to him and extending to them forgiveness. Grace isn't God saying, you know, Kelly and Lacey, they've, they've almost got this figured out, so I'm going to come to them and I'm going to enter them into this tutelage program and I'm going to grow them up to this point and then I'm going to say, now, now you can experience this lavish gift of forgiveness and grace. Grace. Grace is God coming, as we read in Scripture, even when we were dead. It's not that God looked at you, friend, and said that they're going to figure it out. God knew that you were opposed to him, and he came to you in the midst of this, and he extended to you forgiveness. That's grace. And it's so radically opposed to what we experience on a daily basis of, of grudge holding and anger and this, this kind of tit-for-tat mentality where I'm good to you only if you're good to me. I'm angry with you and mean to you when you're angry and mean to me. And we respond in kind. We recognize that, that we were angry and set against God and he came near us in kindness and extended to us grace. We don't have a category for that. We don't have a category for this type of action which is so benevolent, so kind. So we can't really wrap our minds around it. I've been a Christian a considerable period of time. Majority of my life, I have known Jesus Christ. He has been my Savior. This is something I still radically struggle with. Coming to grips with the, the kind benevolence of God. To, to recognize that, that I was set apart from him, against him, and he still came near to me in the person of Jesus Christ and gave grace to me. And that's what Paul says has happened for each and every person who is saved. Paul comes in and he says, for by grace you have been saved. Now, the way this is structured here, we get this picture that, that our salvation is, a, is effective for us at the moment we come to believe, we confess Christ as Lord. And it continues to be effective for us because it is held by God forevermore. Forevermore. But as we read about in the first chapter of Ephesians, this isn't something that God just stumbled upon, happened to put together. This is something that we recognize God has put together and laid down from the, before the foundations of the world. In verse 4, he chose us in him, in Jesus Christ, before the foundations of the world. And he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You have been saved by grace. Grace came near to you in the midst of your transgression. So you think about your former way of existence. You think about your family. You think about, about that unredeemable person. You think about that terrorist. You think about that person on death row. You think about that person who you look at them and you say, you are not worthy. You are not acceptable. You're right, and neither were you. That's the picture we get in Scripture. None of us were more worthy than anybody else. None of us are more acceptable than anyone else. Just because you're acceptable in society does not equate acceptability in the eyes of God. You and I tend to look around and we rate people according to acceptability, to societal norms. Poor people, we say, are less acceptable 
according to societal norms. We want to see people be successful. We want to see people be educated. We want to see people who look good, presumably like us. And we say they're more acceptable in the eyes of God. No. That's just not the picture we see here. God is not only colorblind, and it is the fact that the color is, isn't an establishing motive for him. He doesn't stratify people according to socioeconomic worth or value. He doesn't care about your education. He's not establishing your salvation based upon your aptitude to do well on the SAT, PSAT, or ACT, right? You can take the GRE, get a perfect score. You can take the LSAT and knock it out of the park. You can take the MCAT and do amazingly well, and God is not moved towards you one iota in terms of salvation. As a PhD student, this hurts a little bit. Because I've had a lot of education. I've had a lot of time reading books and poring over these things. And what I come to at the end of it is that my informational knowledge about God has not moved him one iota in his disposition towards me in terms of salvation. God is not more gracious to me based upon my knowledge. God is not more gracious to me based upon my upbringing. God is not more gracious to me based upon the decisions I've made. God is only gracious to me in Jesus Christ. God is gracious to you in Jesus Christ. God poured out his wrath on the Son. This is the picture we see here. That we were dead, we deserved wrath. You remember when you were a child? You did something wrong and you just knew you were going to get it. You broke something. I can remember uh, one particular day we were living in England. I was playing around the piano. I knew that was a bad idea. Like, only nice things go around the piano. No one played it in our home, and so it was the place where really nice things sat. I just wanted to touch it a little bit. Like, the little figurine. I just, like, something about being told you're not allowed to play with it just, oh, it, it just it grates at me. I just, I just want to, like, hold it, touch it. I see that on my kids. It's totally my fault. Honey, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so I'm on the bench of the piano. I'm reaching up, and, and I grab it. And, and, and this number begins to happen. You remember this. And you just fall, and, and it's like you see it coming down. And as a child, you're just like, I'm going to be the soft thing it lands on. Mm-mm. No, children don't think that. Some of you might have really great kids. I, I never thought that as a child. I thought, how am I going to protect myself? And crash, bang, this thing falls, and I see it in like a, a bajillion pieces. That's a technical term. You can look up the number of zeros later. And so I'm just frantically trying to put this thing back together because I know wrath is coming. I know I deserve wrath because I broke a rule. The way that scripture paints it, everybody is apart from God. Everybody is deserving of wrath. And God sent Jesus Christ so that he might suffer wrath for you and I. So that he might suffer wrath for everyone who receives his grace. It's not that God looks at us and excuses our sin. God actually pours out wrath. The Bible has a long word for this. It's referred to as propitiation. It's that God poured out his wrath and the Son bore it. And for everyone who is saved through the Son, they don't suffer wrath because the Son bore their wrath. That's the picture we see here. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. The faith you have is your understanding that God is good and gracious and he will be able to do those things he testifies that he will do. Look at this. Flip to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 
Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and they are a messed up crew. If you've ever been a part of a church you thought was dysfunctional, you don't have anything on the church in Corinth. Paul writes to this church, and he is, in effect, defending his apostolic credibility. He's, he's defending his ability to speak truth into their life. He's reestablishing himself as somebody who has the merit or the ability to communicate to them. Picking up in chapter 2, he, he's referring back to when he first visited with them. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not pro- proclaim to you, uh, not coming to you, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. He said, look, I didn't come to you like the sophists. I didn't come to you with all this artistry of rhetoric and really this free-flowing and, and kind of free-verse design. I wasn't trying to wow you with how great I was at speaking. But what does he do? He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, look, basically, I held up the very basic tenets of the gospel. I presented to you over and over again and on occasion the basic tenets of the gospel. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but were in demonstrations of the Spirit and power. He was presenting them to the gospel and what he said and what he did, his actions in their community. And they responded to that in faith. Paul was presenting it to them, and he was calling on them to give response. Flip to Romans 10. Romans 10, we see this same formulation in 9 and 10. Some of you have memorized this. Paul says, but because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, and this is just the verb form of faith. We read here in Ephesians that he has saved you through faith. Here we read it in the verbal form. So you might translate it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and, and have faith and, and bestow faith and exercise faith. If you have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul describes it in two different ways, but this is the picture we get. God comes near to the dead person, and he graciously shows them what he has done for them. God comes near to the dead person, and he, through us many times, shows them what he has done, and it's described as this gracious endeavor when he comes near to the dead person. And their response, what they're called to do, is to exercise faith. They're called to respond to the gift of God. This is what that posture looks like. It's not that when they hear this gospel message, they say, I love that, I want to add that into my life. No, it's this recognition that they are empty, they are hopeless, and they need forgiveness. There's there's no posturing. There's no sense of pride. There's no sense of welling up of, oh, I knew this was coming to eventually. No, there is submission and there is thankfulness because God has been gracious, he has been kind, and he has come near to the dead person and extended to them an opportunity for life, for real life. Look what he goes on to say here. For you've been saved by grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. You didn't do this. You didn't make this happen. The the hubris of somebody who would get saved and be like, I did that, would be tantamount to this. Imagine Valerie and I are are awaiting the delivery of one of our kids. And so we're, this is going to get awkward. You just close your ears. And so 
And so our, our first child, Bryce, is born, and we're this insanely small delivery room. It's just like me, the wall, and, and then the bed. I'm, I'm right here, and the baby is born. It'd be like the baby's born, somebody walks in and says, Valerie, you did a great job. That was a terrific labor. I'm like, she did nothing! It was me! I was holding up the wall in the bed! Like, I'm integral to this. If I don't have a hand on the wall and a hand on the bed, this whole thing is wrecked. You looked at me and say, like, are you sleep deprived? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say. Friend, you had no role in that delivery. Like she's there sweating and pouring this out and the doctor's doing stuff, but you're just like, I got wall and I got bed. <laughs> it's just stupid. The, the, the way that he paints this here, he says, it's not of your own doing. You responded to the gracious gift and invitation of God. And that's not, a, that's not a placement in you for boasting. In fact, that's where he goes next. Look, he says, your salvation is not the result of works so that no one may boast. You and I are, are boastful, prideful people. If you say you're not, that's just false humility, right? We're, we're boastful, prideful people. You and I, we, we, we kind of crave recognition. We crave recognition. We like it when people see that we've done something different. I recognize that, and so many of you walk by, and I'll say, look, you got a haircut. And you're like, no, I've never gotten a haircut. Oh, okay. You've got a sister who looks a lot like you. she got a haircut. No, I don't have a sister. All right, then. This is awkward. And so we, we, we kind of like this idea of recognition. And, and, and even when we try and keep from liking it, from craving it, we recognize that when we go out and we do things, and people come to us and say, man, you did a great job. It is hard not to be prideful. It is hard to militate against success. Now, there's nothing wrong with hard work. In fact, hard work is one of the things we're called to as a Christian to demonstrate over and over and over again. But the harder you work, oftentimes the more successful you'll be. And so there's this temptation in success to look at it and say, I did this. Like, I, I deserve for people to celebrate me. I deserve for people to be joyous that I'm around. You study hard for a test, you do well, you get a good grade. And that's your payment for that. And so the understanding when we come into Christianity is somewhat foreign to us. Paul says, look, it's not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. He, he graciously gave this to you. Just accept the gift. Recognize you're empty. Recognize he pours grace into you and receive it. Receive the gift that he extends to you. And then he comes again. He says, look, don't go the wrong way with this, friends. It's not a result of works. It's not a result of works. It's not that you were slaving away or maybe you're pouring through philosophy you had, you had philosophy, so you're studying Buddhism, you're studying all these different philosophies of life, and you're, you're wrangling through these things, and you get to the end, and you're like, I proved Christianity through this apologetic endeavor. I proved you exist, God. I proved you exist. I looked at the moral influence theory. I looked at all of these different things, and I proved you exist. So give me that faith. Give me that salvation, because I proved you existed. That's just not the picture we see here. Some of you might have come to salvation as a result of tremendous apologetic endeavor. You're studying Christianity to seek to disprove it. You're studying the Quran, trying to figure out where truth is, how these things work. But it is not your endeavor that saved you. It's not your sweet, dear old grandmother, grandmother that came near to you with the gospel. She is not the one that saved you. It's not the pastor that you loved that extended the gospel to you. He is not the one that saved you. It's not of your own doing. 
It's not of anybody else's own doing. It is only the work of God. Salvation is solely the work of God. And in Scripture records that it is a gift so that no one may boast, brag, report, have their chest puffed out and talk about how great they are and what a good thing God got when he saved them. Salvation should produce in the Christian a sense of thankfulness and humility. Because you recognize you weren't lovely. You weren't lovable. You weren't grand. And he still came near you. Look what he says next. He says, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. This this tremendous thing is painted here. That when he came near to you, fellow formerly dead person, there wasn't much to work with. It's not like you were this tremendous course of, of raw materials where he came to you and said, I can really make something out of Nick. He's great. He's not nearly as hard to work with as Zach or Ed. But he came to you, dead, completely separate from him. And what we read here in Scripture is that we become his workmanship. Now, if you flip back to Genesis 1. It's going to be on the first page of your Bible for many of you. Genesis 1, looking at verses 26 through 28. This is what we read. This is, this is after God has created all things. It, this kind of the coup de grace of his creative endeavor. It's creative exercise. He says, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock of all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God moves to create humanity. So God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The height of the creative endeavor of God is creating humanity. And what we see here in Ephesians chapter 2 is the height of the recreated endeavor of God. God creates humanity. We all fall in Adam. We suffer from the plague of original sin. You've probably heard this said before. We are separated from God because of that. And at some point over the course of our lives, it becomes original guilt for us. We hold to, we become guilty, culpable, set apart from God. What we read here is he created humanity in the beginning. But now God is recreating each and every one of us who comes to him and exercises faith in response to the graciousness of God. This is what Paul says here. In the way that he describes us, he says we are his workmanship. Notice in Genesis that the height of God's creative endeavor, his enterprise there, is is creating humanity. It wasn't when he created hills, valleys, oceans, mountains. It wasn't when he created the lion. It wasn't when he created the hippo. It wasn't even the oddly shaped duckbill platypus. The height of God's creative endeavor is humanity. And the most beautiful exercise of God's recreative endeavor is salvation in Jesus Christ when he recreates 
humanity when he brings us near to him through Jesus Christ. But look what he says here. It's not that God recreated in us and made us alive and set us on this shelf so that everybody could look and just say, what a beautiful thing this recreated individual is. What a beautiful thing that I might behold. It's not that he says you need to exist in this pristine state and, and, and nothing can change, nothing might be altered in your life. In fact, he looks at it in the midst of this and he says, you, his workmanship, you, his artistic endeavor, you who have been made new in Jesus Christ, you, the one who has been recreated, you. You've been created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, and this purpose is good works. This purpose is good works. You've been created in Christ Jesus. You are his workmanship in 2, 5, and 6. In 2, 5, and 6, he says, even when we were dead in his trespasses, he has made us alive together with him. He has raised us up, and he has seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He did that so you might work. He did that so you might work. Not so that you can sit back and say, I'm glad I got this Christianity thing figured out early on. Like I, don't, I can live the rest of my life completely not sweating it. I can live the rest of my life and do whatever I want and just not sweat it because I got salvation locked up. So I can, I can do whatever I want for the course of my life. For some of you who are saved at a young age, and so maybe you've got 70, 80 years, and if you look at your life that way, you have an impoverished view of faith. If you can look at Christianity and say that God came near to you, graciously loved you, extended the gospel to a dead person, and made you alive so that you can do whatever you want to do, you have an incredibly impoverished view of salvation. And maybe you need to revisit if you made a decision or you just said something one day to appease your conscience. Because what he calls us to, what he created you for, is good works. He created you to work. Like he saved you and put you into this place, into these friendships, these conversations. He orchestrated events and, and things in your life to have you here now, hearing this word, some of you, so that you might get off your tail and work. Do you hear that? Like some of you, you, you hear it and you say, oh, you know what? I'm in like the retirement years of my life. I just kind of want to, I want to do some things that are just easy. I want to help out. I want to help out, but I want to help out when it's convenient for me. Service calls for sacrifice. As someone who is his workmanship, he's created you to be an all-star in service. Like this is just how he set it up. God has created it such, and you'll recognize in, in our previous study that God gave Jesus to the church. The church is made up of formerly dead people. Now we recognize the church is made up of people who are very, very good at working. The church is made up of people who are very, very good at getting stuff done. Is it a shock to some of you? Is this a shock to anybody else? Some of you at Ridgecrest, and this is, this, is, this is application for us here, okay? We have a group of people referred to as the leadership development team. Some of you are like, what? Is that like the CIA? No. Your imagination is crazy. Rain it in. The, the LDT, what they do is they try and find people who are gifted and place them in areas and avenues of ministry. Some of you are very difficult to get on the phone. Some of you are very difficult to get to respond to email. Some of you are incredibly elusive, and perhaps you should pursue a career with the, the CIA or the FBI. 
Because friend, it's like you're invisible in the hallway. We see you, we walk up to you, I look around and you are gone. God built the church full of people who are good at doing stuff. Every single person here should be involved. Every single person who has faith in Jesus Christ should be serving. There is no season of just taking it off and saying, I'm just not going to exercise those things God gave me. I'm sorry. Are you reading this? I'm sorry. Are you reading this? Look what. He created you in Christ for good works. Well, I really feel like God's telling me. No, he's not. Like it says it here. Yeah, but I just feel like God, you know, he comes to me. He's impressing upon my heart. It's contradictory to scripture. He says it here. He created you for good works. Like there's no off season in this. You're like, well, okay, you're obviously not impressed. He created good works for you in Jesus Christ. And it's not that you came to faith and he said, I really got to come up with something for Linda to do or Valerie to do or, or Michael to do. The text tells us that as God was establishing the order by which humanity might come to know him, he is already laying aside good works for them to walk in. You came to faith because of the gracious nature of God coming near to you and extending to you salvation. He has prepared a whole host of things for you to do. He's prepared a whole host of things for you to be able to exercise, not because, not because you're adding to your salvation. That's just silly. God didn't set all these things up so that you might pay him back for salvation. Do you get that? I hope you do. He, he didn't set these things up so that you could go do them, so that you could show him that you're truly grateful for salvation. God, I want you to know how grateful I am. I'm willing to do these things. Like, that's not how it works. The Christian serves because that's what you are designed for. He created you. You are his workmanship, his work of art. And as his work of art, you're not to be put upon this shelf and admired and stared at. You are a shovel. You're a crowbar, you're a hammer. You're a dolly. You're a simple machine. And you're meant to be used in a specific way. And that way in which you work, it brings him glory. It brings him honor. We should never, we should never, ever have to struggle to find people to teach Sunday school, to sit in the nursery, to go visit people in the hospital. We should never struggle finding people to serve. You should be irritating the snot out of me. You should be bothering us. We should have a list 10 people deep in every avenue of ministry because you want to do more. You weren't created to go through life and make it to a point where you could gratify self and, and, and live on some beach in Florida or take all these tremendous vacations and just spend the golden years of your life satisfying all the things you ever wanted to do. You were created to serve. I want you to see this. He starts off in verse 1 of chapter 2 and he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
You used to walk in trespasses and sins. You were dead. But look what he's done. He has made you his masterpiece, his work of art. He's created you for good works, and now he calls on you here at the end to walk in them. You're to walk in the reality, into the reality of what he has made you, not what you once were. Not what you once were. The Christian living apart from a church body, the Christian living and doing things to gratify self is living in their former way of existence. You're living the way you used to live, and you were dead. Don't go back to living the way you used to live. Walk in the reality of what you now are. You used to walk in deadness of sin and trespass. Now you're to walk into the good works in which God laid down beforehand so that you might recognize them, walk in them, and serve. These aren't idle words. It's not that this week that I sat down and I said, I wonder really how I can guilt people into doing stuff. House needs to be painted, car needs to be washed, divers need to be changed. This is what the text tells us. This seems to me to be a pretty plain reading of the text. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you are to serve. If you are a Christian, you need to be working. One of the things you'll recognize that if you've ever exercised and stopped, that it tends to fall off, right? And, or, or fall out for some of you. <clears throat> like muscle mass decreases, atrophy sets in, and, 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 and we get kind of comfortable in this, this feeling of just kind of blobbiness, softness. Same thing can happen for the Christian. The longer you take to get back into working and doing stuff, the harder it is. It is on you to get back involved. It is on you to serve. It is on each and every man, woman, and child to find a place that matches your giftings with an opening for service. If you can't find one, make one. If you can't find one, make one. To do anything other isn't to disappoint me but it's to be disingenuous and I believe to dishonor God because what he says here is that he set it up so that you would come to know him and he set it up so that you would come to serve him. Amen? God saved you to serve. He didn't save you because you did serve, but he saved you so that you might serve him. Let me pray for us.